This podcast is sponsored by our partner, QXMD. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based medicine in clinical practice. Check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. And CALCULATE for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash apps. Welcome to the Critical Care Obstetrics podcast series on cardiac disease in a pregnant woman. My name is Suzanne McMurtry-Baird, and I am the nursing director at Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics. And today I'm here with my partner, Stephanie Martin, the medical director at Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics. The topic for our discussion today is mitral stenosis in pregnancy. And specifically, today we'll be discussing a plan for labor and birth for this patient uh, who is pregnant with mitral stenosis. We're going to start, though, do something a little different with this podcast, and we're going to start with a case study. So I'm going to give you a history, and then we're going to follow this patient throughout the podcast. So I'll start with the history. She's a 25-year-old Gravita 1 at 36 weeks with a history of moderate, moderate mitral stenosis. She has had limited prenatal care. She's done well through her pregnancy and is now admitted into early labor. Last echo showed a mitral valve area of 1.6 centimeters squared with an ejection fraction of 56%. The left atrium is slightly enlarged. She offers a history of having an irregular heartbeat at times, and she's had to take medications for this in the past. Currently, she's not on any medications. When she comes in, she is assessed as a New York Heart Association Class 2. She's a modified WHO Class 3 with a CARPREG score of 4. This would give her a um, risk of cardiac complication uh, of around 20 to 27%. Her vital signs are blood pressure, 128 over 64, heart rate of 98, respiratory rate of 20, and a pulse oximetry value of 98%. Her heart rate is regular with a 2 over 6 systolic murmur and 3 over 6 diastolic murmur. The fetal heart rate currently is a category 1 with a normal baseline rate, moderate variability, and periodic accelerations along the baseline. She's contracting every 2 to 3 minutes, and they're moderate to palpation with a normal resting tone. So we're going to be following this patient through the podcast as we go along. And uh, we have some highlights that I want to start with. And and I'm going to turn this over to you, Stephanie, so that you can maybe review those concepts that you highlighted in a previous podcast regarding the pathophysiology. Thanks, Suzanne. So yes, I did do a previous real brief podcast on the pathophysiology of mitral stenosis, and it's really important that we highlight some of those things, but you're welcome to go back and listen. Some of you may remember or recall that 
that that um, mitral uh, stenosis is typically related to rheumatic heart disease. So this is, in fact, the most common rheumatic heart valve lesion. So rheumatic heart disease is a condition that uh, that develops. You're not born with it, and it occurs after an untreated strep infection, and it leads to scarring of any or all of the cardiac valves. It really can be any, any valve at all, aortic, mitral, tricuspid, whatever. And uh, the damage can vary quite a bit. And there could be, you know, scarring, which could lead to narrowing, like with mitral stenosis, or you can have vegetations on the valve that can be confusing, look like clot or thrombus or something else. Or you could have just a leaky valve and just see signs of insufficiency or regurgitation. In this patient, we've got mitral stenosis due to rheumatic heart disease. And so it led to scarring and narrowing of that opening. Now, what happens when you've got a stenotic mitral valve is that you you end up with a ventricular diastolic filling obstruction. So what does that mean translated? That means that blood leaving the left atrium is blocked by this narrow opening. So it's very slow to empty from the left atrium into the left ventricle. Now, if the left ventricle is inadequately filled or doesn't have enough blood in it, then cardiac output is going to go down. Now at the same time, the left atrium can back up all this fluid that should, this blood that should be going across the mitral valve into the left ventricle backs up into the left atrium and the left atrium can get enlarged. Now all of this, the impact on cardiac output, the size of the left atrium, everything is going to depend on how narrow that opening is, how stenotic the valve is. Smaller openings mean worse obstruction, bigger impact on diastolic filling of the ventricle, and bigger risk for dilated left atrium. Now the problem with the left atrium enlarging is twofold. Number one, you end up with fluid backing up into the lung vasculature that increases the pressure in the pulmonary vessels and then can lead to fluid leaking across and that's cardiogenic pulmonary edema. But that distended left atrium can also lead to arrhythmias and that can be a problem for the patient as well. So cardiac output, which is really the key with all of this, right? How is the heart perfusing the rest of the body and delivering blood and oxygen to the tissues? It's dependent on really three things. You've got to have enough time for that ventricle to fill in the relaxed diastole phase of the, of the heart cycle. And that's impacted primarily by heart rate. You have to have time for that, that atrium to empty into the left ventricle. The second thing is preload. How much volume is there that the heart has to accommodate? And then lastly is whether or not you've got atrial fibrillation because that's the most common arrhythmia that you're going to be dealing with as the left atrium enlarges. So if the atrium is fibrillating or quivering, that means it's not contracting effectively and that flow across the valve is going to be impacted and worsened even further. Now, Suzanne mentioned that our patient has a valve area of 1.6 centimeters squared. Don't get freaked out about the numbers, but just to give you some perspective, um, the smaller the opening, the greater the likelihood of the patient having symptoms related to the size of this valve. Most patients will develop symptoms when the valve area is less than two centimeters, and this is considered severe when the valve area is less than 1.5 centimeters squared. So our patients kind of borderline for being having severe mitral stenosis. Now, some patients will have such significant narrowing of the valve that they require treatment during their pregnancy. So 
I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but just so you know, it is possible to balloon open this valve. That is an option where they just literally insert a balloon into that valve to open it up and, and dilate the valve open. Um, but hopefully for patients who are known to have mitral stenosis and they're getting prenatal care, this risk assessment and management is happening with cooperation by the pregnancy heart team. They're at a maternal level three or four facility and the team of care is going to make decisions about whether or not this patient needs to be treated uh, during her pregnancy. Hopefully those decisions are made before she shows up in labor. Thanks, Stephanie. Let's catch up now with our patient and see where she is in labor. So she just had a cervical exam and she's four centimeters, zero station, uh, and she had spontaneous rupture of membranes from the time of admit, you know, between the time of admission till now. Uh, uterine contraction stalled out a little bit, so they started her on oxytocin, and they're going to do a, a low dose physiologic dosing uh, protocol. Currently, the fetal heart rate is category one. There has been some times with category two tracing uh, going down to minimal variability, but for the most part, category one uh, during the labor. Her blood pressure is 124 over 72. Her heart rate is now 110. Her respiratory rate is 24. She's satting somewhere between 97 and 98% consistently, and now she's requesting an epidural. So let's get into the plan of care. I know that gives y'all some palpitations too to think, got a patient that's borderline severe mitral stenosis. She now has some abnormal uh, vital signs and now she wants an epidural. So let's talk about some of the keys that we want to um, think about when we're uh, taking care of a patient like this. And some of the things I was thinking about as we were going through this case study and setting it up was, what would I want to know as the nurse if I if I were taking care of this patient. And we've gone over these two, uh, but just in the back of my mind, I would want to remind myself, what is the patient's ejection fraction? And then what was her risk assessment? Um, and as for any cardiac uh, patient, you would want to then also anticipate any of those potential complications that you may be faced with. Um, I also think about simulation with this as a, um, any of the care team members uh, will want to be confident and know who's on their team, where they are, and in thinking about some of those potential complications, this is the perfect opportunity to simulate with your team. And if you know ahead of time that the patient's coming in, then you can simulate some of these potential complications before she ever even gets there. So, Let's review again the complications that can occur with this patient with mitral stenosis. First, cardiogenic pulmonary edema. And I know that's a big fear uh, for a lot of uh, nurses and physicians during the labor and the birth process. And we're going to definitely go into more of that in a few minutes. But remember, cardiogenic pulmonary edema is fluid volume overload. And in this patient, she would become fluid volume overloaded in the pulmonary vasculature only because of that blocked or uh, stubborn valve that where you cannot empty the left atrium into the left ventricle, and then it would back up into the pulmonary vasculature. That's a fluid volume 
or cardiogenic pulmonary edema type clinical picture. Then again, arrhythmias. And the, the number one arrhythmia that we're worried about is atrial fibrillation. Thromboembolism, especially if you have um, atrial fibrillation, and then pulmonary hypertension as the volume backs up into the pulmonary vasculature. Stephanie, I'm going to turn it over to you and let you talk about uh, how to avoid some of these complications. Sure. And I, and I want you to think about, you know, our patient has requested an epidural. So as we talk about how to avoid these complications, I want you to start thinking, can, can this patient have an epidural? Will an epidural help or hurt the potential risk for these complications? Then we'll, we'll address that more in a minute. So again, three key things to keep in mind to avoid the complications that Suzanne was describing. Number one is you've really got to avoid tachycardia. So a normal heart rate, a slower heart rate is necessary to allow adequate filling times. We've got to allow enough time for that left atrium to drain the blood into the left ventricle so that she can maintain cardiac output. So if her heart rate is over 90, typically we're going to be starting beta blockers. And in a laboring patient, this is going to mean a continuous infusion of something like Esmolol that can then be titrated to whatever your target heart rate is. For most pregnant women, we're looking at a targeting the heart rate to be somewhere in that 70 to 90 range to try and allow adequate time for the left atrium to em empty. Now, most patients with significant mitral stenosis are going to be on continuous ECG monitoring during their labor and birth process. But if they get an esmolol infusion, if they're not already on ECG monitoring continuously, then it's definitely indicated. Now, at the risk of stating the obvious, um, terbutaline is not recommended for these patients. In fact, it's contraindicated because it's going to cause an increase in your heart rate that is going to decrease that filling time and significantly in the, increase the risk for cardiogenic pulmonary edema. You also need to be cautious using beta agonist medications like albuterol for patients with asthma because it can cause um, an increase in heart rate. So anything that'll increase the heart rate could potentially create a problem. So other things that you need to avoid, um, in addition to avoiding tachycardia, you need to avoid hypovolemia. So if you have decreased volume, that can lead to inadequate filling pressures. And um, when you don't have enough volume to actually fill the ventricle, then your cardiac output can decrease. And you may not have enough volume to overcome that obstruction from the mitral valve. So super important to not end up with decreased volume or hypovolemia. And the most common situation that you're going to be at, uh, be with in, in this uh, patient population is going to be a hemorrhaging patient, or maybe she's significantly dehydrated. And lastly, we want to avoid hypervolemia because if you have too much volume, then you can end up with cardiogenic pulmonary edema simply because there's too much fluid that has to overcome that obstruction. It's going to back up into the left atrium and into the lungs, and you're going to end up with cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Now, Suzanne, I want you to share some of your experience with um, invasive monitoring uh, in your OBICU setting uh, and, and share some of the lessons that you learned. Sure. So... Um I say back in the olden days, but it was the early 90s, that was Swan-Gans catheter was really um, utilized in these patients. We would bring these patients with cardiac lesions into labor and delivery the night before. We would do invasive hemodynamic monitoring with a pulmonary artery catheter and an arterial line. 
we would optimize their hemodynamics, which is still a good idea before you start any kind of induction of labor, but optimize them, go ahead and put an epidural catheter in place, and then we would have that available for when the patient uh, became uncomfortable because pain management is key, and we'll get into that in just a second. But uh, pulmonary artery catheters are really not utilized uh, very much anymore. Um, specifically, in this patient population, they may be in certain circumstances, but usually not. We'll usually uh, use a less invasive approach to monitoring hemodynamic functioning uh, function, uh, even though it's intermittent, it's been shown to be as effective as an invasive line um, on these patients. So we'll manage them uh, without the PA catheter now, uh, but we did swan quite a few of these patients um, in our OBICU. It, it made it to be quite honestly, pretty easy to manage them because you had all of the data there in front of you. We had all of our, not only our hemodynamic profile that we would get every hour, including cardiac output, but we would also, uh, we had an oximetrics uh, swan that we would place on these patients. So we got all of our oxygen values as well. So uh, not just cardiac output and, and, uh, CVP and wedge pressure, but we also got oxygen delivery, oxygen consumption, any kind of, um, we got our arterial oxygen content. It was very easy to tweak these, uh, really kind of micromanage them throughout labor um, and any of their fluid shifts. And we had great outcomes. Um, we could avoid tachycardia. We could avoid hypo or hypervolemia. Um, and we would run these patients fairly wet uh, on the volume status because we didn't want her blood pressure to drop, which was another key. Uh, we didn't want them to ever, you know, go too high on their pressure or too low on their blood pressure because that could affect cardiac output as well. So um, we just mon monitored them really tight and ran them tight. So currently, what do we do? Well, a lot of these patients will have an arterial line in place uh, to monitor blood pressure continuously, but also for another reason is to do another form of uh, a less invasive form of hemodynamic, hemodynamic monitoring, and that is with a pulse contour monitor. So with a pulse contour monitor, you can estimate, get an estimated cardiac output, and that comes with stroke volume and an estimated systemic vascular resistance. And then you have all the other data that comes from your non-invasive line. So it actually evaluates that waveform of the arterial line and gives you these estimates. So that's a common practice now with more of your severe patients uh, with some of these lesions. So Invasive hemodynamic monitoring, remember, if you have any form of invasive hemodynamic monitoring, and that includes an arterial line, that means the patient is in an intensive care environment. Um, we do not manage arterial lines on or outside of an in intensive care unit. Um, and that, that goes across the board for any arterial line, not just for cardiac um, patients, but for any 
patient that's on your unit with an arterial line, they are critically ill or have the potential to become critically ill. And they need to be managed by a nurse and that has critical care experience. And so that that's a higher level of care. So I just want to make sure that everybody understands that because we hear that some units uh, they may manage arterial lines, but they but they're not considering themselves uh, an intensive care. And I'll point you back to our very first podcast that we did last season on that, um, because that's a that's an important concept to get down. Is that uh, no anesthesia is not managing the arterial line. Um, the nurses. So that is that is who judges the waveforms and and does a lot of the care related to the arterial line. Okay, I'm going to get back to some of the other concepts about caring for these patients during labor. Uh, I want to mention tachycystole. So it, you noticed, and we said that the patient was on oxytocin. When I'm managing oxytocin with this patient population well, with any patient, but especially a, a cardiac patient, you want to prevent or try to prevent tachycystole. So all of the the concepts about spacing contractions, you know, with a uterine contraction goal of every two to three minutes, moderate to palpation, uh, having some resting time in between the contractions, all of that applies, but it especially applies to a cardiac patient because if you think about the oxygen consumption during labor and having too frequent of uterine contractions, then you want to make sure that you get those contractions spaced out adequately so that you don't have too much oxygen consumption in this patient. And the other thing that we want to do is pain management. So pain management is a huge um, component of care for uh, to labor a patient with cardiac disease. And it's essential to make sure that we control the pain in this patient because of the oxygen consumption again. So in this patient, neural axial anesthesia is reasonable option uh, for a patient with mitral stenosis. However, um, I would just like to point out that, you know, you need to have an anesthesiologist with expertise and understanding of the pathophysiology of mitral stenosis in pregnancy, but also how to minimize risk for this particular patient population. Um, so the specific issues that come to mind, we've discussed, and that's that fluid balance, you know, and throughout labor, this patient may have several fluid boluses for different things. So let's think of uh, fetal monitoring. If you gave a fluid bolus for fetal monitoring and that happened over and over again, or maybe she hasn't had that. or So again, that fluid balance is critical. And so when this anesthesiologist comes to do this epidural uh, and place that, then they can adjust their fluid and, and manage that tightly to try to prevent some of the complications, especially the cardiogenic pulmonary edema. So also when thinking about fluid balance, we want to think about strict INOs, very necessary for this patient, not just through labor and birth, but in the postpartum period as well. So again, long labor, if this patient has a long labor, the, the fluid volume that she may get, the fluid shifts, especially in the postpartum period. And we want to make sure that we 
don't overload, but that we don't underload as well. So again, a lot of that has to do with the degree of stenosis that she has. And, and I certainly don't want to make anyone afraid of using fluids in these patients. In fact, you know, sometimes we see these patients under volume uh, loaded. So don't be afraid of the fluid, but key is again, that good fluid volume balance and, and you can adjust and take away, but you can also monitor very closely these patients uh, and where they are with their fluid volume, volume. So let's update now on where our patient is. She was placed on continuous monitoring uh, throughout her labor. And if you remember back when we were going over the last update on her, she had a heart rate of 110. So we're going to need to uh, manage that, but she's also gotten her epidural since we last updated you. She's tolerated the epidural placement. She had no hypotension um, following, so they did a great job at making sure that uh, that didn't occur. And despite her epidural, her heart rate remained over 90. So an arterial line was placed and she was started on an esmolol infusion drip. And that was titrated, again, to maintain her heart rate between 70 and 90 beats per minute. Now she's complete and she's plus two. So we're going to need to get ready for birth. So I'm going to let you take this uh, from here, Stephanie, on some delivery recommendations. Thanks, Suzanne. I think to start with, I want to say that just because you have a diagnosis of mitral stenosis does not mean that the patient needs to have a cesarean birth. So vaginal delivery is absolutely acceptable and you would reserve cesarean birth for all of the usual obstetrical indications, um, but mitral stenosis in and of itself is not an indication for um, an operative birth. But if she does require a cesarean delivery, then the team needs to be prepared for all the same issues that, that can happen. Uh, tachycardia, cardiogenic pulmonary edema, hypo or hypertension, bleeding, and needs to the team needs to understand how that can impact her cardiac function. So always being aware of the patient's volume status, especially if she's been laboring leading up to um, the cesarean section, you know, she could be volume depleted, she could have excess volume, but that's super important to understand before you take this patient back uh, for surgery and then you have a potential bleeding issue. It's also not unusual for patients to get additional fluid boluses during C-section and, you know, blood loss is typically higher for uh, surgery than for a vaginal birth. Then immediately after delivery of the placenta, you have this auto transfusion effect. And that, uh, that essentially is about a 500 cc bolus into the circulation. And that can lead to cardiogenic pulmonary edema. So your patient may have been fine before, and now she's not fine anymore. Now we've got um, this bolus of fluid and she can end up with cardiogenic pulmonary edema. And we're going to talk more about that immediate postpartum period in a future podcast so that you can be prepared. So what happened with our patient? This patient had a successful vaginal birth. The team anticipated that she was going to have some immediate fluid shifts postpartum. She was carefully monitored for decreasing um, O2 sats and evidence of pulmonary edema, looking for uh, changes in her respiratory rate, breath sounds, and any development of any of shortness of breath. She did very well and was discharged home on postpartum day three. Now, simulation can really help the team prepare to care for a patient with mitral stenosis. So we always recommend that the team ask themselves, 
what is the worst thing that could happen to this patient? And what are we least prepared for? And if you ask those questions and then use simulation to help target those issues with different scenarios, that can improve your team performance and boost the confidence of the people at the bedside that are actually caring for these patients. We want to thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. You can learn more about our company at www.clinicalconceptsinob.com. You can also follow us on our Facebook page, Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics, or on Twitter at OB Critical Care. Email us or send a direct message for suggestions on future podcasts. And for a list of references on today's web t- webs- on today's topic, go to the read app qxmd.com slash apps or visit our website. This podcast and music was produced by Austin Baird. Are you looking to create a podcast? Please reach out to nashvillepodcast at gmail.com. Once again, that is nashvillepodcast at gmail.com.